0: The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke 23 will be there in a few seconds. Luke chapter 23. You know, you hear of how men on death row tread to their their death. They've been sentenced to die, and they've awaited that death for some time, and you can only imagine the somber look on their face as they walk to their death. They're guilty, and while there are exceptions of those who have been wrongly accused, the majority on death row are rightly accused and indicted and shown guilty, and the just court of law, Jesus was walking to his death in Luke chapter 23. And that by far exceeds the somber occasion of anyone that is walking to their death. Jesus has been through so much at this point in Luke chapter 23. He's been through an entire night of unjust trial. He's exhausted. He has gone without sleep. He's raw and bloody, not just on his back, everywhere. I think sometimes we kind of we view the scourging of Jesus as staying in one spot or another, but they stripped him down to near nothing and you know while maybe they had some kind of pre- precision those those whips were wrapping around his body. I mean it's everywhere his back may mean the main, be main, the main target, but the Roman scourging is relentless and unmerciful. Not only is his body bloody, but his face is sweaty and bloody as well as the crown of thorns have been driven on top of his head. And you can only imagine why one named Simon was compelled to bear his cross. Jesus just couldn't do it. His body could not bear up under that weight. It had already been beaten and beaten and beaten. He was exhausted. He was without water, nutrition, and his life was nearing its end. And then we read in Luke chapter 23 of individuals who weren't necessarily even believers in Jesus as the Christ. Jesus calls them daughters of Jerusalem. And this interaction with them showed the macabre nature of Jesus' sacrifice in this whole scene. Because a great multitude of the people followed him in verse 27 of Luke 23 and women who also mourned and lamented him. And Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Even these individuals who are not believers in Jesus, by the gruesome nature of this scene, were moved to tears and sympathy for this man. Yet, what's even more impressive than this is not just Jesus' merciful mindset of warning them of the wrath to come but the fact that the wrath jesus speaks of he says is going to be worse than what you're seeing here can you imagine that can you imagine looking on the bloodied and beat down son of god who is just barely making it to the hill of calvary to be raised up on a cross and crucified before individuals and he says you don't even know you can't even imagine what's coming he says don't weep for me Weep for yourselves and for your children, he elaborates. Verse 29, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. Jesus explains in a proverbial form in verse 31, For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And while we may not immediately grasp the nature of that statement, it's an ominous one. It's a scary one. Essentially what Jesus is saying, if I as an innocent, righteous, sinless individual am subjected to this kind of treatment, what's going to be done to you, O sinful generation, who are worthy of all kind of wrath? We understand the nature of green wood. If you have a fireplace or have ever dealt with burning wood, you know that wood that has the sap in it, wood that is fresh cut and hasn't had time to dry out and cure, or wood that has just sat through a rainstorm. It's not going to burn. You're going to have a hard time even getting it lit, and if you, by luck and chance, uh, come to get that wood lit, and it holds a flame, it's not going to hold very long. Just this past winter, I remember going to the gas station, they had those bundles of wood out there and I grabbed some and I went and I wanted to have a fire and it just would never catch on. And I kept trying and trying and trying and eventually caught on a little bit and you could hear it hissing because it was full of water. There was a storm the day before, and eventually it just dwindled out. Couldn't get a fire going. And I even waited a few weeks later and I still couldn't get a fire going with that wood. It's kind of just profitless to to be working with wood of that sort. It takes time to cure. It takes time to dry out. But Jesus is saying, if this happens to the green wood, I'm ablaze. I'm set on fire. I'm going through the worst kind of thing that you can imagine. I'm going through the worst kind of torture and I'm going to be executed in the worst way known to man, the Roman crucif- crucifixion. And if this is happening to me, what's going to happen to you who are putting me on the cross. Romans may be driving in the nails, but you're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Vine comments on the word translated green, which denotes wood that still has the sap in it. And he says, that is, if they thus by the fire of their wrath treated Christ, the guiltless, holy, the fruitful, what would be the fate of the perpetrators who were like the dry wood exposed to the fire of divine wrath? And I want to tell you that there's a general principle put to this, that if there's an individual who's righteous like Jesus, obviously no one has been perfect like Jesus, but Christians are supposed to be called righteous, aren't they? As their sins have been washed away. If those who are the children of God experience such treatment by the world, if they go through bad things and they're subject to negativity, God doesn't spare them from suffering. Then what's going to be the end of those who have rejected Christ. If we've got it bad in life under the sun from time to time, what's going to be the end of those who aren't even right with God? What's going to be eternity for them? And what this sets up as is an ominous warning to all men with a gruesome example of Jesus compared to rebellious Israel. He's speaking of the destruction of, That was to come on Jerusalem because of their disobedience to God and ultimately the rejection of Christ. Israel was described as rebellious for a couple of reasons. One, they mistreated God's law and we see a perfect example of that in Matthew the 15th chapter. After Jerusalem had gone through a period of their history which was really cyclical in nature and we can read throughout the entire Old Testament of their rebellious ways, And they were led into Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem being destroyed at that time had been destroyed, I believe, four times before finally being destroyed permanently in AD 70. But when they were led into Babylonian captivity and were there for several hundred years and then came back, they had adapted a lot of that culture and that religion and and made for themselves their own laws and traditions. And that's what we read of in the New Testament, the tradition of the elders. And what this did is it supplanted The law of God. They loosed where God had bound and they bound where God had not bound. And so they added to the law and they took away from the law. Remember in Matthew 15, the Pharisees brought a complaint against Jesus. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus goes on to say, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? It's just a a tradition. It didn't come from God. And not only are you just binding it as a matter of salvation, you're actually substituting that for the law of God. He gives an example of that with regard to their tradition of saying, You not need not honor your father or mother if you call this uh, your gift that would be to them Corbin, that is a gift to God, and you give it to God instead of giving it to them, and and really they weren't doing that. It's just an excuse to to avoid having to submit to God's commands. But notice what he calls them in verse seven hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. And Jesus says, God's not going to stand for this. Verse 13, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. All these traditions, all the doctrines you're holding on to for dear life and and you're putting so much stock into, that's not going to save your souls. It's going to be uprooted and you with it. Along with their mistreatment of God's law, related to that is their mistreatment of God's law bearers. The teachers that were inspired of God sent to the children of Israel for their instruction and edification and guidance and righteousness so that they would be preserved. I mean, God gave them a promise in his covenant of an eternal kingdom. That time span, though, was conditional upon their faithfulness. That's why Israel as a nation does not exist to today, in, in that regard, as God's actual people, God's not with them any longer. They don't thrive as God's people any longer. It's because they mistreated God's word, and they, they showed that in a dramatic fashion by killing the messengers God sent. Jesus speaks a parable about this in Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. He says, there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vinedressers and went into a far country now when vintage time drew near he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit and the vine dressers took his servants beat one killed one and stoned another again he sent other servants more than the first and they did likewise to them he speaking of his prophets he sent to the children of israel and they rejected them and stoned them and killed them because of the message they bore and that was The message of God, a message of holiness and righteousness, a message to repent of sin, a message of judgment. They didn't want to hear it, so they just put him to death. You know, and the last one that would be sent is no prophet at all. Really, he's the prophet to end all prophets, the the prophet of which Moses was a type. He was not just any prophet. He was the word of God himself, God's son. The parable continues in verse 37, Jesus said, then last of all, he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Notice what Jesus does. He kind of sets them up to condemn themselves of this guilt. Therefore, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers?" They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him into powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them, and indeed he was. This bears implications of the punishment of Israel as they rejected Christ. It was the final straw. They rejected all the prophets. They mistreated the word of God. They continued in a state of rebellion and unfaithfulness. And God said, I'm finally having enough. I've tried to receive you back to myself. I've been long-suffering. I've given you chance and chance and chance. And this is it. I sent my son and you rejected him. Doesn't get much worse than that. Something bad is about to happen. Certainly, it bears implications for anyone who reject, would reject Christ, as we read in verse 46. Reject Christ, you'll suffer the consequences as well. But definitely, it bore implications of the destruction of Jerusalem. Thus, Jesus goes on just a few chapters later to prophesy about the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 31 of Matthew 23, his ominous words are spoken. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now, they would deny that, but Jesus says, No, you're just like them. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things Will come upon this generation. He says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house, house is left desolate. For I say to you, You shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the first half of chapter 23. He starts giving warnings, things that they'll be able to see, signs of that time to come where those who actually did believe in Jesus would believe in those words and they would be able to escape the wrath to come. But all those arrogant Jewish rulers would ignore the signs, would ignore Jesus' words, and they would suffer terrible, unimaginable things. That's why he uses these words when he's describing this destruction to the daughters of Jerusalem, he says, Indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Can you imagine a time where people would be so low and so filled with sorrow and suffering to such a degree that they look at a woman who can't have children and say, That woman's blessed. I don't think so. That's the worst of the worst. That's what he's saying. It's gonna be that bad. Says then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. The destruction of Jerusalem happened as Jesus prophesied it would happen. The date was AD seventy when Jerusalem fell. Josephus, a ancient Jewish historian, I believe in I think about A.D. 75 is when his writings began. Describes the wars of the Jews from way back in the Old Testament all the way up to A.D. 70 and their destruction. And the descriptions are scary and gruesome. This is what he says. Neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries from the beginning of the world. He goes on to say that if the miseries of all mankind from the creation were compared with those which the Jews then suffered they would appear inferior. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus gave some detail about what would happen. He said in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, we know that to be from the armies of Rome, then know that its desolation is near. And that's exactly what happens. And Josephus recorded that. They would set up embankments around the city of Jerusalem, ultimately, to keep supplies from going in and keep people from coming out. And what would that do? It cut off all their nutrients. And they would begin to starve and thirst. And it got so bad within that city. This is what Josephus records. Moreover, their hunger was so intolerable that it obliged them to chew everything while they gathered such things as the most sordid animals would not touch and endured to eat them. He goes on in this historical account that he recorded to describe a woman who several bore witness to, that went on to roast her own baby and eat it. That's how bad it got. And we can read of those kind of prophecies regarding the Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament. We can know that times can get pretty bad. If God tells you to repent, that's what he means. And you better listen up. This is what's happening to Jerusalem. This is what Jesus warned about. Then the city was finally taken and destroyed after that period of suffering. And none were spared. All who were seen that didn't escape were taken and destroyed by the Roman army. And Josephus' account describes how they would take individuals and crucify them to the extent that they ran out of crosses to crucify people on. It got terrible. The streets were paved with blood. He says in his antiquities, the wars of the Jews, yet hath not its great antiquity, speaking of Jerusalem, nor its vast riches, nor the diffusion of its nation over all the habitable earth, nor the greatness of the veneration paid to it on a religious account been sufficient to preserve it from being destroyed and thus ended the siege of Jerusalem. He said there was, no, there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. And we can understand a little bit more why Jesus said if they do these things in the greenwood, what's going to be done in the dry? If they're doing this to a man who is the son of God and has shown countless examples of his divinity to where you are without excuse, who has kept the law of God perfectly and he's allowed to be suffering in this way, what's going to happen to you, sinful generation? If they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? I want us to notice this, though, that Jesus, as described as the greenwood, certainly did go through a fire of tribulation. But while he was burning there, figuratively, of course, on the cross, while he was suffering an ignominious death, a terrible fate, he lives. In Acts 2 and verse 23, this is what Peter said, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. But the Jews, they're dry wood. Green wood may burn for a little while, but not be fully consumed. Dry wood doesn't stand a chance. If you get dry wood, and we know from the the previous forest fires in and the the western part of our country, how fast those things burn, and that there's nothing left to dry wood when the flame touches it. There's a reason why that figurative language was so effective in James chapter 3, speaking of the tongue. See how little fire kindles that whole forest. There's nothing left to the dry wood. Like there would be nothing left to Jerusalem. But I want us to understand and emphasize further The idea behind that proverbial statement of Jesus in Luke 23, 31, for if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? If the righteous are subjected to such suffering, Jesus perhaps suffered the worst, but every righteous individual that has ever been recorded in the history of God's people and who lives today is subjected, is not exempted from suffering. If the righteous suffer, if the children of God suffer, what's the end of the ungodly? That's scary, isn't it? It gives us something to think about and ponder, something that we can work toward escaping. I want us to understand that the suffering of the righteous is certain. They will suffer, but as greenwood may burn a little and not be consumed, so the righteous will burn, but they will not be consumed. In First Peter chapter 1, and verse 6, Peter says this, And this you greatly rejoice, speaking of their hope, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's saying it's not a possibility, it is an absolute fact, without a doubt bank on it, you will suffer. And while it's not coming directly from God, like we read in Second Corinthians 12 and verse 9 with Paul's thorn in the flesh, it's a messenger of Satan to buffet him. It's certainly allowed by God, like we read in Job chapter 1 and 2, so that you can have your faith tested. That's why James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You gain endurance to get through the rest of the trials of life to come. And God's design is that we are built up and come to maturity but also you get to prove your faithfulness. And the end of your faith is the salvation of your souls. What we are doing as we suffer persecution and tribulation and distress and anxieties and doubts is God is forming us as the great potter of our lives in the crucible of trial and tribulation. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says that we glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character character. Hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. That's what God's doing for us. Certainly, we're subject to trials. None of us is going to be exempt from it. Paul notes by his own example that the road to heaven is paved with tribulation. In Acts 4 and verse 14 and verse 19, it says that the Jews from Antioch, when the apostle Paul was in Lystra preaching the gospel came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Notice this. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That means that When the judgment day comes and all is said and done, sentences have been meted out and people are where they will be for eternity and you find yourself in heaven, it's because you went through a lot of tribulation to get there. That's what Paul's saying. Look at me, I was just stoned and left for dead because I was living the life of Christ and preaching his word. Let's be comforted by the fact that just like green wood is hardly ever consumed until it is fully dried out and then is dry wood, so the righteous will be spared. We'll go through this fire, but God is not leaving us alone. We won't be consumed. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul gave an example of concerning himself and the other apostles in 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 7, he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. He says, We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about the uh, in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. He goes on to say in verse 16, Therefore, because we're burning, but we're not being consumed, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You're subject to the flame, but you're not subject to ashes, is what Jesus tells us and what he assures us of. You'll go through tribulation, but you'll come at it not only a better Christian, but you'll come at it with an indestructible body. That's what Paul's talking about. In chapter 5, he talks about that house made without hands that comes from god it is eternal in the heavens in first corinthians 15 in verse 42 he describes it he says so also is the resurrection of the dead the body is sown in corruption it is raised in incorruption it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body and so the words of paul resonate with us when he says I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We look forward to that day and we look forward to that day with confidence as that is exactly what hope is because of what Paul continues to say in verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, we, if we are meeting the qualifications of and the descriptions of who God calls Greenwood, the righteous people of God, His children, those of the household of God with the hope of heaven, those who bear His name. Even if we meet those descriptions and we are a part of Him, we will suffer these things, but we won't be consumed. If they do these things in the greenwood, though, what will be done in the dry? That's really the focus of this lesson. It's to emphasize how bad it will be for those who are wicked And we know how bad it will be for those who are wicked because even those who have the hope of eternal life because of God's grace and their submission to the gospel by faith, they're suffering unimaginable things now. And if they have to suffer now, what's going to what is it going to be like in the end? You know, some people like to ask the question skeptics do that is if there's a God, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's really a logical question, they think. But as we study Scripture, we understand the positive nature of the outcome of those bad things that are happening to God's people. And they consider it to be a reason to not believe in God because if God is good and He's all-powerful, then bad things shouldn't happen. But that's not how sin works. That's not how rebellion to God works. You see, the question shouldn't be, if there's a God, why do bad things happen to good people the question should be, if there is a God and bad things happen to good people, what's going to happen to the bad people Isn't that sinister, Isn't that scary? If the good people suffer and we understand God is the one who defines goodness, those who are after his law, if the good people suffer and God is real, then what's going to happen to the bad people? What's going to happen to the wicked? What's going to happen to the ungodly, the unrighteous, those who are not submitting to their Creator? Jesus reveals it to us in the Scripture. They'll suffer for eternity. They're not green wood who endure a flame only not to be consumed. They're the dry wood and all that's left is ashes. And we understand that to be a description of the magnitude of the suffering and the torment in hell, fire, and brimstone But the crazy thing about it is the same indestructible body that the righteous are going to be raised to, the wicked will be raised to as well, which means they will never be destroyed ultimately. It's not only an eternal flame, it's an eternal anguish. There was one in the brotherhood who taught posthumously through written works that hell actually simply destroys us and we don't exist anymore. That's not what the Bible describes the Bible describes the one who is met with a flame that they can never imagine and never have experienced before in their lives that is all-consuming, yet they're never consumed. They're just continually burning. And that's the eternal death of those who are not subject to God. If they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? We read a similar statement in 1 Peter chapter 4, setting the context, though Peter is encouraging his readers, to not think these fiery trials strange. It's appointed for you. And he started his epistle with that, as we noted earlier. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as so as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you, that is, You've submitted to his will, and that's why you're suffering. So you're right with him. You're on the right side. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. And that's the nature of the greenwood. If you're suffering and you're in that flame, that tribulation, but it's because you're doing good and you're greenwood, you're going to endure that. You're going to come out it better and you're going to survive it. But if you're suffering for doing evil, there's nothing to rejoice about because destruction is coming. And that's kind of what he progresses into in verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? It says judgment begins at the house of God. I think that's kind of twofold. It's the judgment of God. He's judging us now. When we're suffering, it's a form of judgment of God. He's judging, are you faithful or are you weak? Verse 7 of chapter 1, remember Peter said that the genuineness of your faith will be tested by that fire. That's God's judgment. He's judging you. He's judging me when bad things happen to us, whether it be by time and chance or simply because we're standing up for the truth and evil men will judge us. God is judging whether you're going to be faithful or not. And if judgment starts with us in that suffering that is allowed by God, what's going to happen in the end for those who are wicked? And in fact, that's the second part of that judgment. The wicked are judging us. In chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter says this, that they speak against you, as evildoers in chapter 3 in verse 16 they revile your good conduct in christ and they defame you as evildoers in chapter 4 a little bit more is given to us in verse 4 he says in regard to these things the abstinence of these ways of the gentiles they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you they're judging you he says they will give an account to him who is ready to judge living in the dead for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. Judgment begins with the house of God, but they live according to God in the spirit. It says if judgment begins at the house of God, what's going to be the end of those who don't even obey the gospel? If it's so bad for us as we live for Christ, what's going to happen in the end for those who don't live for Christ right now? It's got to be bad. It's got to be bad. He likely quotes from Proverbs 11 and verse 31. He renders it in 1 Peter chapter 4. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? In Proverbs 11 and verse 31, this is how it is rendered. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner As we know from other readings like Hebrews chapter 2, a just reward is not always positive for the receiver of that reward. A reward can be positive, and that's often how we view it, but this recompensing, this rewarding is suffering. It's negative. And if the righteous are recompensed while on the earth, what's going to be the reward of the ungodly and the sinner? What's going to be the end for them? And that's what he's saying If the righteous are scarcely saved, not fomenting doubt, but showing the difficulty to heaven because of what Paul said in Acts 14, as we quoted earlier, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. It's called the narrow path for a reason. It's hard. And if it's hard in the way of tribulation for a Christian who is doing what is right to get to heaven, what's going to be the end of those who are walking in the path of unrighteousness? And so he encourages his readers in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Because you've got the choice of suffering now and having eternal glory or living it up now and avoiding suffering and burning like dry wood in hellfire. That's what he's saying. Because if that judgment begins with God's house what will the ungodly and the sinner have in the time to come? And we read things like the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And we see the importance of Jesus' words. If they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? A lot of individuals, they balk at the idea of following Christ because of what it may cost them. They think it's far better to just live in the way of the world than receive the kind of pleasure that the world has to offer now than have to look forward to something that isn't going to get here in who knows how long and suffer while you're waiting. You know, I can imagine as we read in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man, that he probably passed by Lazarus every single day because it says that there was a certain beggar, verse 20, named Lazarus, full of sores who was laid at his gate, the rich man's gate. That's the entrance into his whole estate and Lazarus is there every single day. He's got sores on his body. He's not got a dime to his name. The dogs are licking his sores and I can imagine the rich man who fared sumptuously every day, who had all the wealth you could imagine, anything his heart desires, it's not kept from him because he's got the means to pay for it and receive it. I can imagine him passing by the Lazarus and saying boy I'm sure I'm not him I'm sure glad I'm not him I sure don't envy Lazarus I don't want to have a thing to do with what he's going through yet he never considered this sobering thought that Jesus expressed to the daughters of Jerusalem in Luke 23 if if these things happen to the green wood what's going to happen to the dry wood and the rich man was dry wood And you know what? He may have never have asked that question, but he certainly got the answer. It says that the beggar died and was carried by the angels in verse 22 to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son... Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great goal fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Eternity is what Jesus is saying. That's the answer to the rich man from Abraham that you lived your life. And the flame never touched you as dry wood, but now you're being consumed and it's gonna be for eternity. Lazarus suffered, but as green wood he was not consumed, and he lives to this day in comfort. We've got to consider that question. As I alluded to briefly before, some hesitate to obey the gospel because what might that cause me? What what, what am I gonna to have to suffer? What what am I gonna to have to give up to follow Jesus and be his dedicated disciple? You know, if I follow Jesus to the degree that he requires me to follow him, there's going to be things that come upon me by people who oppose his ways. And that's exactly what Jesus promises. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3.12, will suffer persecution. Is that worth it? What if I'm ostracized? What if people don't receive me anymore? Maybe it's even my own family the sword of Christ is very clear about the division even between you and your family that is possible and certainly what if revelation 2 10 comes true in my life that I'm faithful and death comes upon me is it worth it a lot of people balk at it a lot of people put it off a lot of people don't want to follow Christ because of what might happen to them now and they never consider that if you follow Christ and you're the greenwood and that is something you have to endure then What's going to be happening if you never follow Christ? In the end, what's going to be the end? If you decide to be dry wood, will you be able to withstand the judgment to come? Remember Felix and how he decided not to follow Jesus when Paul reasoned to him in Acts 24 about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now, for when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. He didn't consider the very words of Christ. If these things happen in the green wood, what's going to be done in the dry? Paul's in prison. Felix is in charge of him. And now Paul is convicting him of sin, saying if you don't do what's right and repent of what is likely, as Josephus does record, an adulterous relationship with his wife, Drusilla, you don't repent of that. Judgment is coming. You need to control yourself and work righteousness. But instead of getting his life right and perhaps having to suffer for Christ, And then receiving eternal glory in the end, he wanted the pleasure of here and now. We've got to have that consideration of whether the cost of not following Jesus is worth it. I think we've got to ask the question, is it worth following Jesus? We've got to count the cost. Luke 14 talks about that. But then Luke 14 goes on to talk about, you've also got to count the cost of making the decision not to follow Jesus. He said in Mark 8 and verse 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you desire to save your life? Well, if you do, you're going to lose it. What's going to happen when judgment comes? And what will the prophet a man, he says, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Jesus says this in Luke 14, 31, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. That's exactly what Jesus offered Jerusalem. That's exactly what Jesus offered Israel peace. He offered them long suffering, and if they repented, he offered a repentance on his part of the judgment that would be to come, but they rejected it. Remember in Matthew chapter 23, he said how often I wanted wanted to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. The fact of the matter is, is we can't withstand the opposition of Christ in judgment. His word will judge us in that day, John 12 from verse 48 and unimaginable things are in store for those who don't submit to him now. If the righteous are not spared from sufferings in this life, what's going to be the end of the wicked? That's the question of Jesus. The end of those who are wicked is the eternal fire that Jesus describes in Mark 9 and verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation 14 and verse 11 says that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Is it worth it to suffer for Christ? Take Christ's word for it. It's far better than the alternative. If you're here this evening, I've not obeyed the gospel of our Lord. We want to extend that invitation to you so that you can escape the wrath to come. Israel could have done it, but they didn't. And recorded forever in the annals of history are the gruesome facts of that destruction. And the misery that was there. We should learn from it. And we should accept God's gift of forgiveness and salvation. You can do so by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins this evening. But we don't know how long God will be long-suffering. So do it now before it's everlastingly too late. And if there's any other spiritual need that we can assist you with, the invitation is offered to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing that song which was selected.